Good afternoon. Uh, thanks for coming to, to this forum. This is the first forum that Cato's new Center for the Study of Science is holding. Uh, and we're very, very pleased that we've got Edward Calabrese here. I'd like to give you a little background. Is this not on? Is this on? There we go. There we go. Okay. I'd like to give you a little bit of background uh, to Ed Calabrese's talk, a little, little uh, story. The story starts with this picture of a nuclear weapon. This is actually the Hiroshima bomb going off. This was the result of the federal government taking over science. Uh, and when President Roosevelt realized that the war was about to be won, he went to Vannevar Bush, who was the director of the Office of Strategic Programs, special programs that oversaw the bomb. And he said, is there a way that we can keep science federalized, that we can keep the scientific community employed? And that began the revolution in science where the academy was pretty much taken over by the federal government with regard to science. Bush produced this report called Science, the Endless Frontier, which even at its time in 1947 was called Science, the Endless Budget. And what we, what we have done is to have federalized science. So we've created kind of an Ayn Randian State Science Institute, and you can see it in all types of venues. Um, now, this has problems, because when you have monopoly provision of funding, and you have a political process interfering with that, um, you can get some untoward results. Now, some people were aware that this might happen. Uh, this fellow here uh, was the president of Columbia University. You also know him, of course, as Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, and in his farewell address, he, he talked about two of these things, the first of which was his famous statement about the military-industrial complex, which is, in the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. How prescient. Nobody ever seems to remember what the next two paragraphs in the speech were, and those are the remarkable ones to me. Free university, historically the fountainhead of, of free ideas and scientific discovery, has experienced a revolution in the conduct of research. Partly because of the huge cost involved, a government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. I said this in 1961. Uh, holding scientific research and discovery in respect as we should, must, we must be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy itself could become a captive of a scientific technological elite. Well, I work on climate change, and I can tell you that is precisely what happened. And Ed Calabrese works in toxicology and dose response, and I can tell you that's precisely what happened. Now, while all this was going on, a young person at Harvard by the name of Thomas Kuhn wrote a manuscript in 1947, at the time of the Vannevar Bush's report. It wasn't published until 1962. It was the famous book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And in it, he wasn't considering the impact of the federalization of science. But he had noted several occasions in which science really did not progress as logically as one might think. Uh, instead, it progressed from paradigm to revolution to paradigm and there was much resistance. So the following quote from, from Kuhn's book should be applied to Ed's talk. And I want you to think about this quote when you're seeing that talk. In science, novelty emerges only with difficulty manifested by resistance against the background provided by expectation. Initially, only the anticipated and usual are experienced under circumstances where the anomaly is later to be observed. Well. Ed Calabrese has been observing anomalies for 20 years now. He's a professor of toxicology at the University of Massachusetts School of Public Health and Health Sciences in Amherst. He's the author of over 750 papers in the referee literature, as well as more than 10 books. The latest one is called Hormesis, A Revolution in Biology, Toxicology, and Medicine. Um, he, his research, a uh, particular note, uh, has led to important discoveries on the uh, fundamental dose response in toxicology, uh, and it is not what you think it is. His research is leading to a major transformation of improved drug discovery, development, and in the efficiency of clinical trials, as well as the scientific foundations for risk assessment and the environmental regulation for radiation and chemicals. He is at the core of the regulatory monster, and you need to listen to Ed Calabrese. Thank you.
Uh, thanks very much for that very kind introduction. Um, the title of the talk, as you can see, is a looming scientific revolution in environmental regulation question mark. Uh, I would state off uh, right in the beginning that um, I'm really challenging uh, the, uh, you know, it's really a challenge of which model, you know, which model best describes the nature of the dose response in the low dose zone. We have been dominated for the last 50 years or so with two different models, a threshold model, which really came first, so to speak, in the regulatory sense back in the 1930s, and then um, 1956 or so with the recommendation of the Bayer One Committee, the, um, the transformation from a threshold model to a linear model for genetic risk assessment, and then a year later, its generalization to somatic cells and its application to, um, to the world of cancer. And these two models have dominated the scene. And uh, the new kid on the block is the hormesis dose response. It's a biphasic dose response. And, um, and I'm here to uh, tell you about uh, my journey into the... Uh, the right-hand switch. Okay. Into the uh, uh, dose response world and why I think actually that... Uh, uh, we have made a, a fundamental error on the nature of the dose response, not just with linearity, but also with, with threshold. And, and I'll try to provide the foundation for that. I'll also try to provide the foundation for, for why um, I believe that this um, uh, hasn't been recognized. I'd also have to tell you that I've been at UMass now 36 years. In my first um, 25 years, I never mentioned the term hormesis. I taught straight from the, uh, the Bible of the regulatory agencies. I taught, I taught uh, threshold. I taught linearity. And that's basically how I did it in my toxicology and risk assessment courses. And, um, and it wasn't that I hadn't heard of the concept or hadn't experienced the concept. Um, I was actually afraid to direct students to do research on hormesis for fear that I couldn't place them in jobs and other aspects. There was a certain amount of um, that to my professorial role with how do you chase money, what studies do you go after, how are you placing your students. It all plays a, a role in this. Well, all of you, I'm sure, are quite familiar with the threshold, linear, and uh, hormetic model concepts. And we'll take a, a, a look at this uh, now. The, if I can go back one, uh, I'm sorry, I guess here it is, yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, the, um, the first serious discussion of dose response occurs in the uh, mid-1880s, many, many years ago. And it's uh, following the research of this guy by the name of Hugo Schultz. And Schultz is a pharmacologist, toxicologist in a northern European university who is studying the effects of uh, chemical disinfectants on yeast metabolism. And what he finds, to his surprise, is that uh, the, the disinfectants, instead of showing some sort of a threshold or perhaps a linear type of uh, a decrease in, in, in uh, metabolic uh, performance, he finds that at low doses, the yeast uh, metabolism is stimulated. And then at high doses, it's inhibited. And, and he repeats his studies repeatedly um, to the point where where he and his associate were fully convinced that this was a reproducible phenomenon. But, but he was surprised to see it. And, and I went back and read, got a translation of his, um, his autobiographical statement. He has in there the, the, the moment of discovery and how he overcame his doubts about this. And, and it, it really wasn't much of an observation. It was a biphasic dose response. Well, why did it become significant for him? Why it became significant for him and why it's important for us is that two years before this, he had seen a study in a homeopathic journal in which somebody claimed that a particular homeopathic preparation was useful in the treatment of a form of gastroenteritis. 
that form of gastroenteritis had been uh, identified, the causative agent had been identified as a certain microbe that had just then been able to be cultured, identified and cultured and grown. Schultz got that um, bacteria, cultured it, got the homeopathic preparation, and wanted to see if, in fact, the preparation would actually kill the microbe. While he applied it and applied it and applied it, no matter what dose he provided, <clears throat> he had no impact on the survival of that microbe. You and I might have concluded that, oh, maybe the homeopathic paper was wrong. Um, because this, this uh, treatment had no effect on the causative agent. But did Schultz conclude that way? No, he didn't. Schultz still said, I believe that the homeopathic preparation was indeed effective. I just can't explain why. He might have been the only one in the room who thought that way. Now, fast forward two years or so, 1885, he's having a meeting with a colleague, um, uh, Rudolf Arndt, and together they, they come up with um, a new way of looking at things. And from that, Schultz says, I think I know how homeopathic drugs work. And they work not by killing things, but by enhancing the adaptive capacity of the organism to resist the infection, not by killing the infecting agent itself. And he says, this is a low-dose adaptive response High dose, there would be an inhibitory or toxic response. He claimed soon thereafter to have, to have discovered the explanatory principle of homeopathy. He was a young assistant professor type, 32 years old at the time. And he made a terrible blunder by doing this, uh, in, in my opinion. Um, why? Politically, because there was a major battle going on at that point between uh, what will become traditional medicine and homeopathy. It was a major economic, philosophical, sociological, and other battle over who would control the direction of healthcare in this country. And it was actually mean and dirty, all right? It was mean and dirty. Schultz sided with the homeopathic interpretation. He was working in a traditional medicine school. What it did was he got quickly marginalized. He said the wrong thing. He wasn't allowed to progress. He was ridiculed. It's all laid out in the, the contemporary literature of the time. And the rest of his life was pretty well marginalized as well. However, important from our story perspective is that homeopathy actually scooped traditional medicine on the concept of dose response. The first really established dose response was a biphasic dose response. It just so happened to be that it was associated with uh, homeopathy, which is going to ultimately be a discredited medical practice. Well, in the late 1890s, early uh, first two decades of the 20th century, very brilliant uh, cadre of pharmacologists and neuropharmacologists from the UK uh, came to be, and they formulated, in a much more formal sense, the first real concept of dose response. And they, as you can imagine, were also part of the medical establishment. And they knew and were aware of the battles between homeopathy and traditional medicine. And there was no possible way that they could ever adopt the explanatory principle of the opposition. So they had to somehow come up with a dose response, and they opted for something that resonated within their own experience, something they probably, probably had observed experimentally, and they came up with uh, a threshold dose response relationship, developed the mathematics around it, and ultimately uh, got this incorporated into some of their own textbooks, into regulatory perspectives, and at the same time, <clears throat> with certain leaders of their own group, continued the, the uh, attack on Schultz, um, misrepresenting him, and many other aspects, because it, it, it was a political battle as well as a scientific battle, but mostly political. Well, as it turns out, <clears throat> uh, by the late 1920s, homeopathy is essentially dead. 
1931, 1932, and he's not there to defend himself or, or his particular dose-response theory. Other people are publishing biphasic dose-response relationships along that uh, at that time period, some of them quite substantial, but it never gains what I'd call intellectual scientific market share. It always remains marginalized at that particular point. Well, the threshold was having a, a free ride, pretty much. It's our boy when he's 70 years old in 1923, Hugo Schultz. Um, the, um, so the, the biphasic dose response um, is a difficult thing to study because, and we'll see it, it's a biphasic dose response, but that stimulatory, that low-dose stimulatory zone is, as I've come to learn, it's only a modest stimulation. It's about a 30 to 60% stimulation. That's hard to prove especially if you have a, only a limited number of doses, you have a high background variability, you don't know sometimes whether you have variability or a real treatment effect. And you have to actually um, choose the correct models, um, the correct endpoints to begin to clarify this. It's not unlike epidemiology trying to um, estimate effects you know, in the percentage zone. It's very difficult. Uh, relative risks below two, it's very hard to prove. Um, the uh, hormetic stimulation in the 30 to 60% range, it's hard to prove. And so, um, and this is gonna be an issue that we'll have to come back to. It's, uh, and how do you make sure you're not diluting yourself thinking that it's a hormetic effect and not variability? Uh, but multiple people actually began to study this much more earnestly in the, in the 80s for many different disciplines and for a variety of reasons. Uh, and this concept uh, essentially got a resurgence. Um, the threshold dose response model uh, essentially made a, you know, despite the fact that these pharmacologists uh, from the UK and others who adopted the threshold model were pretty outstanding people. They made, and the regulatory agency, regulatory agencies from multiple countries made a serious blunder, which we are living with today. And the serious blunder is that the threshold model that I really grew up on and came to love, um, the threshold model uh, was never validated. By validated, what I mean is uh, the threshold model in the below threshold zone should in fact uh, just show uh, random bounce or, or noise. There's just, there's no, in theory, there should not be a treatment effect and what you should observe toxicologically should just be a random bounce. Um, well, is, is that true? Well, when I was trying to validate the hormetic model, I wanted to go back and see how, how the toxicology and regulatory communities had validated in fact the threshold model. And I looked and looked and looked and looked and looked. And, and I spent uh, several years trying to find the validation studies and, in fact, never could find it. it. Can't say that it doesn't exist. I haven't found it, and I have looked. And uh, so what I did was I said, well, okay, I'm going to assume it was never validated, and you can prove me wrong today. But what I did was I got about three or four large data sets in the tens of thousands of data of, of dose responses and different endpoints and decided to see, well, which dose response model would accurately predict uh, the response in, a, in the low dose zone. Is the model uh, linear uh, predicting, threshold, uh, biphasic? What are we going to find? And in these three independent, uh, three or four independent approaches, what, because, and I didn't know what the answer was going to be, there weren't my data sets and all, uh, what we found was that the, um, the uh, threshold model and especially the linear model uh, poorly estimated the responses in the low-dose zones. Um, the only model that actually predicted them well was the hormetic model in each particular case. And so <clears throat> we had had many thousands of other examples of biphasic dose responses, uh, but this were, these were large chunk data sets. And, and 
And to me, um, you know, basically, this was a serious problem, I thought, for, um, for both of these other models. And when you, when you have your regulatory uh, edifice built upon models that haven't been validated, and that when you tried to validate them, failed the validation, to me, it was a significant uh, thought. Uh, in terms of the linear model, the, li the linear model actually was put forth to challenge the threshold, mo uh, the, the threshold model. And it was really put forward by the radiation genetics community throughout the 1930s and into the 1950s, mostly led by the radiation geneticist um, Herman Muller, who won the Nobel Prize in 1946 for discovering that x-rays in can induce mutation in 1927. And so, but it was interesting that the very first time that the LNT, I can find it in the literature, is one year after Muller comes up with his discovery. He does it, it's put forward in 1928, not to describe um, um, cancer or mutation for public health points of view, but uh, if you remember your chemistry, uh, Gilbert Lewis of Lewis Acids and Bases, he's a physical chemist at UCAL Berkeley. He and a colleague proposed an LNT model to actually try to propose what the, what the mechanism of evolution is. And, and ultimately, it was to explain evolution, not regulatory um, cancer risks that LNT was created. It soon was transformed into what we understand it today in the 19, later 1930s and early 1940s, <clears throat> but that's where it actually uh, came to be. And, and ultimately what happens is that uh, the leadership of Muller was very significant, and so too his community of radiation geneticists and in 1956, the very first NAS committee dealing with the, the biological effects of atomic radiation made, I think, the most significant transformation in environmental public health science tied with dose response, in which they recommended switching from a threshold model to a linear model. And that was very narrow because it was just dealing with germ cell mutation, but within a year, it was generalized by other advisory international committees to uh, deal with somatic effects and therefore to deal with uh, cancer endpoints. And it was basically been a straight line since that point uh, for the, the separation of uh, threshold versus linear, the application of linear to cancer, and it really came out of this bare one committee, very significant in our perspective. So in, in effect, this is Muller at his, uh, at his prime. Um, Muller lived for five years uh, during World War II in the town that I live in today. I've um, found out where he used to live in. There's a fire on his street the other, other day, but his house is still standing. Um, in terms of hormesis now, what are we talking about? I'm talking about this as the alternative to the, the mainstream uh, models. It's a dose-response phenomenon characterized by a low-dose stimulation and a high-dose inhibition. Um, one thing that really stands out here, and that is that, is that there's a generally similar quantitative features to this dose response with respect to the amplitude and the range. And, and this is gonna come back in an important way later. Um, in terms of the mechanism, um, hormesis may be induced directly, a direct stimulation, or it may be the result of a um, overcompensation response to a disruption in homeostasis are to some minor toxicity. I would have to tell you that uh, um, in terms of uh, specific mechanisms, I have identified now over 400 different hormetic mechanisms or dose responses, over 400 different dose responses in which we have the mechanism down to um, the level of receptor or cell signaling pathway in which if you block the receptor or block the pathway, you can block the hormetic response. You remove the inhibitor, you remove the, the antagonist, and you get it back again. It's a very definitive uh, proof for involvement of the receptor or the pathway for for um, at least on the hormetic side. And I know when you're dealing with regulatory agencies, there's a demand that you show mechanism. Um, and I believe that on the hormetic side, it is not gonna be just descriptive. It's not gonna be just rep replication. I believe, I know that we can show this at this, at this level. Uh, the, 
Okay. Now, in terms of hormesis, uh, I separate the concept of benefit from harm from the discussion of it. I look at hormesis as a, um, as a biological phenomenon. Whether it's good for you or bad for you, that needs to be interpreted within a broader context. Um, sometimes uh, the effects can be very beneficial, perhaps, and other times uh, it could be uh, undesirable. And we'll talk about that uh, in, in a second. Now, over here is that second. Uh, this is an example of uh, a schematic of an inverted U-shaped dose response looking at, for example, an anti-tumor drug. Now, in this particular case, what you have at high doses, the therapeutic agent is uh, inhibiting the, the growth of the tumor cell. But at low doses, you could get a stimulation of the tumor cell. Uh, I've seen this, and we've published this in, in our work. And this would be an example of where this low-dose stimulation, I believe a hormetic effect, is doing something that might be beneficial for the tumor cell, but certainly not for us or a patient and is, uh, is not desirable. Uh, there are other situations where you can have agents that can inhibit uh, the growth, uh, shrink the size of the prostate uh, gland, and in low doses, it could actually enlarge it. In, either, in those cases, any change is not desirable. And so, um, and I've seen that within the literature as well. Here we have uh, an example of where something could be a desirable effect that's hormetic. Most memory-enhancing drugs uh, act or display an inverted U-shaped dose response. Uh, in this particular case, you're trying to get this little boost in response. And that's desirable. And that's within the, the, what I call the hormetic stimulatory zone. But if you take too much of that, uh, it can actually have an undesirable effect. So whether it's beneficial, whether it's uh, um, uh, harmful or, or something that's untoward, um, it depends on the endpoint that you're looking at, the chemical. And the, the biggest problem here is not knowing the answer. Because if you don't know what's going on in a low-dose zone, it's not to your advantage. You really want to know that. Uh, now, as a general summary, before I show you some graphs, <clears throat> uh, we have about four hormesis databases of some considerable uh, size. And in these uh, thousands of dose thousands of examples, many thousands of examples, tens of thousands of examples uh, of hormesis exist. Uh, what I've learned from this, and that this has been you know, part of my learning process, and that's that hormesis is very general. Uh, it's independent of uh, biological model. It's independent of the endpoint that you measure and independent of the chemical class that, and physical stressor that you're actually measuring. Um, so I'm viewing this as, as something that is uh, extremely uh, generalizable. And when I started off on the hormesis track, I wondered if it was just uh, uh, kind of one of these quirky, paradoxical kinds of situations. But as a result of our studies, we've now come to the conclusion that not only is hormesis real in general, but we think that it actually occurs um, far more frequently than anything that we've observed for threshold or linear. We actually believe it's a dominant um, in head-to-head -head, uh, competition, which we've published. We believe that it's uh, uh, dominant to those other two models. Now, stylistic graph over here shows um, the inverted U curve with basically the 30 to 60% increase that we typically see. And I'd have to say, I never thought it was 30 to 60% when I started off. When we developed our criteria, our criteria um, essentially was going to be uh, evaluating it up to fourfold, 400%. And as we kept getting example after example after example after example, almost never got above twofold. Everything was modest. And, and then I said, gee, I can understand why people couldn't see it, because it was modest. I kept, and then, but then I, I began to say, well, maybe it's the modest that makes it even more real, because in the beginning, I, uh, I thought that hormesis occurred principally or only by an overcompensation to a disruption in homeostasis, so that you got a little bit of toxicity, then you got a compensatory response, and the biological system slightly overcompensated. And what we were really seeing is hormesis was really a modest stimulatory response, 
an overcompensation response. It was like me showing up for my talk today. I didn't show up three days ago. I only showed up several hours before because you want to uh, be efficient in what you're doing for, on everybody's time. Well, in this case, if you have a little bit of damage and you're trying to get back to your original, original set point, you want to make sure you get there by, by going a little bit over. And a little bit over is in the percentage range, not in the fold range. And then I said, that's, what, that's real to me, but that also makes hormesis hard to prove. So you have to study it uh, not just within dose response, but you have to study it over time. And you could miss it if you don't look over time, and also with doses. And so it makes it more difficult, but that was my first belief. But then I began to see that sometimes people could show this low-dose stimulation, high-dose inhibition, and do it almost, almost instantaneously in pharmacological systems. And I said, those are examples where I'm not seeing this inhibition. I'm seeing a direct stimulation. And I'm saying, I guess this can happen both ways. But the interesting thing there was, they, whether it was an overcompensation or a direct stimulation, the, the quantitative features of the dose response were nearly identical. I said, well, that's interesting. So how could that be? Two different mechanisms, two different approaches, the same type of quantitative features of the dose response. And so I began to, I didn't know, my, my realization now is that I, I believe that what's happening here is that the hormetic stimulation is actually defining the, the, the limits of plasticity. Within a, within a biological system. And the plasticity, it puts constraints whether you have an overcompensation or a direct stimulation. Now, I'm gonna show you some examples here, and I'm cho choosing these just to show you a broad range of things. Um, <clears throat> here you have methanol on fruit fly longevity. You have about seven or eight doses, a low dose stimulation, high dose inhibition, consistency between the males and females in a very, very highly reproducible uh, system. It's very easy to miss that. You could easily throw away that 20% that stimulation as, as variability unless you re reproduce it, reproduce it, reproduce it, reproduce it, and, and now in the molecular world, actually intervening and blocking it, removing the block and getting it again. Here we have a study out of Oak Ridge looking at gamma rays and mouse lung adenomas. Each one of these, these blocks are triangles. They have about 500 to 750 mice in them. It's a very large study. Here, if the LNT was really doing uh, an accurate prediction here, you'd have expected a linearized uh, forcing of a linearized uh, line through the origin at the 100% mark here. But what we're seeing is a, is a uh, sorry, Getting this wrong. We, we keep seeing a, um, a um, decrease in risk below at these different dosages for the male and female. Here we're looking at uh, an example of acute ethanol. And on the social activity of, of rats tested on day 30, and I've seen, these, I've seen the videotape of these rats. It's really rather interesting. But there's a, a really sharp increase in activity and then decrease you know, at higher doses. Here we have going over to plants and looking at cuttings of carnations and roots and looking at the effects of x-rays. And you can have high doses inhibition, but the low dose stimulation. Here we have uh, resveratrol on uh, cardioprotective effects uh, in um, <clears throat> various biological systems. And you have at low dose the so-called protective effect of resveratrol. But at high doses, it actually is a, uh, um, uh, can be harmful. Here we're looking at, uh, actually, the model system that Herman Muller won his Nobel Prize in. He worked with uh, Drosophila and sex-linked recessives, immature uh, uh, male germ cells. And at high doses, he was able to show that x-rays, in fact, cause mutations. And they do it in a, in a linear fashion with some of his uh, follow-up students. But when Muller was working and his students were working and developing their concepts of linearity, they were working at doses between 200,000 to 400,000 greater than background, very, very high doses. Um, if Muller had had the time or inclination and he was actually able to lower the dose, he might have uh, essentially won a second Nobel Prize because this one he would have actually seen an adaptive response that was, uh, uh, that was present. 
the, the biphasic dose-response relationship. But in fact, as we'll learn, our regulations are based upon Muller having only this rather limited high-dose view of it, because he believed that this relationship was linear and not a J-shape. Here we have sodium arsenate on um, lymphocyte stimulation. Um, and we can have uh, lots of doses here. High dose is inhibitory. At low dose, we get the flip to the other side. Um, and it's in this 30 to 60% zone. Here we have um, an, exa an example of um, uh, an anti-anxiety drug. Anti-anxiety drugs are designed to reduce anxiety in us, but how do you study it in mice or rats? Well, in mice, you want to get the mouse or rat to do that, which it normally wouldn't do. A mouse or rat likes to stay in a dark zone. And, and if you bring it out into the lighted area, it tries to stay away from it, maybe because it doesn't want to get picked up by a hawk or something like this. So if you can get the mouse or rat to go into, into the lighted zone, it's like getting me to drive a car into New York City. I mean, I'd never do that. Uh, and so, and that's what they measure. Um, time spent in the lighted zone, how many entries, and all this sort of thing. And if you can get them to do what they don't want to do, it's a measure of overcoming their anxiety. That's how it's typically sought. I have looked at about 150 anxiolytic drugs done at the preclinical data. They essentially all show this inverted U-shaped dose response, all in the same hormetic quantitative framework. I believe that the entire world of anxiolytic drugs is actually based upon, they're all examples of hormesis. Uh, I'm not showing a slide today on this, but the same is true for, for anti-seizure drugs. If you look at anti-seizure drugs, there are many different kinds of seizures, many different kinds of models. But if you can make it more difficult to induce a seizure with a seizure-inducing agent, if a drug can make it more difficult to induce it, that's a candidate drug for a pharmaceutical company. You look at, and I've looked at really about 100 of these different types of drugs. I have not seen an exception to the biphasic dose-response relationship conforming to a hormetic dose-response. Um, now, over here, um, we worry about methylmercury in our environment. But if you, t and, and its effects on nerve cells. Well, this D407 cell line is a neuronal cell line. This is an example of methylmercury and how it affects viability in this neuronal cell line. At high doses, the methylmercury is indeed toxic to the neuronal cell line. But at low doses, we have a consistent enhancement of uh, viability in this very sensitive neuronal cell line, consistent with a hormetic interpretation. Even some of the most toxic substances that are regulated for very sensitive endpoints. Over here, we have uh, something that's in my drinking water in Amherst. We have this this MX byproduct of disinfection. And so I know it's a, uh, a mutagen, and I take great comfort in the fact that at low doses, it actually reduces the uh, occurrence of mutation, but at higher doses, it, it actually does as, as uh, we, we uh, would think that it would. Um, over here, this is a significant study that came out of uh, Japan looking at DDT. Now, we know DDT is regulated as a liver carcinogen by many governments across the world based upon a study, NTP study, with Fisher 344 rats, and, and it causes uh, liver cancer in males. The Japanese looked at liver foci, so they didn't do the full cancer study, but they looked at a strong predictor of the occurrence of the cancer. Um, and what they found was that at high doses, they did get this uh, quite striking, linear-looking dose-response relationship. But when the investigators lowered the dose considerably, they didn't get essentially a straight line going back to the origin. They actually got a J-shaped dose response. The investigators looked into this in considerable detail at the mechanism level at the high end and at the low end to try to figure what the transition was. A very outstanding, highly reproducible uh, work by these uh, investigators. Over here um, is essentially a graph taken from a Society of Toxicology um, expert panel of 14 people tied into the uh, famous EDO1 mega mouse study. 
um, dealing with uh, bladder tumor incidents in which they did a, a dose-time relationship. Now, in this particular case, there were six different um, buildings or rooms housing the various animals with the different dosages. In each of the rooms, they got the same biphasic dose-response relationship, kind of indicating a, a replication six times over. But the point that we have here is that in this study with 24,000 mice in it, the largest study ever conducted with rodents, uh, for the bladder tumor incident, uh, we have a J-shaped dose response. The uh, expert panel for the SOT committee task force, they never said the word hormesis, but they said that there was a threshold here, and they said that there was a beneficial effect below. Maybe they hadn't heard the term hormesis at that point. Um, now, <clears throat> here is a study coming out of Japan that was taking a look at low dose rates and lifespan. And in the red over here, we have the irradiated form. And you can't quite see it, but this is on the bottom here. We have how long they lived. And we can see that the irradiated groups lived about 20% longer uh, than the, uh, the unirradiated controls, very much contradicting uh, what one might think in terms of uh, mutation, somatic theory damage, and, and so forth. These are animals that came from that study. Uh, this over here is the control group. Looks a bit like my 95-year-old dad before he died. Uh, lost a lot of his hair, looked kind of beaten, and, uh, and um, looked the way I feel a lot, actually. Uh, but actually, uh, this is the control group. Now, over here is, uh, is the irradiated group. They got the low dose rate, and these are 90-week-old animals. I looked at this nice, plump, uh, they claim very shiny fur. Uh, I was kind of saying, give me some, really. Um, but, but it was, if you showed that on television and you had a movie star uh, essentially, you know, uh, promoting it, uh, they would be saying, well, you know, that must be some new nutraceutical out there that I want to rub on my fur skin and just somehow let it work. But it's actually low doses of radiation given over 90 weeks. Um, that's really the only slide I should have showed off today. <laughs> Okay, uh, so why has toxicology missed hormesis? Well, as you can see, hormesis actually is a modest response when you're dealing in the percentage range. And so it could be variability. You have to actually have strong studies. You have to have lots of doses. You have to define the low-dose zone. You can't do it with high-dose toxicology. You really cannot do it because you can't get into that low-dose zone. And so when you only have a few doses, you go in a high-dose zone, you're going to miss this phenomenon. Now, in terms of, uh, there are other reasons that are, it's not just science that people have missed this. As I told you in the earlier part of this presentation, there was a history behind this. And the history is that I believe that we are victimized by uh, a past. And that past, surprisingly, came out of a battle between homeopathy and traditional medicine. And that ultimately, traditional medicine chose to go down a certain path and, and basically uh, really just crushed uh, homeopathy. And then uh, traditional medicine had to back down on the issue of uh, mutation and cancer and allowed linearity to enter this, into this game. I, it's not the, the time for me to give this other talk, but I would have to tell you that, that the switch to linearity, I believe, that came out of the Bear One Committee, I believe came out of a process of, of important deception at the highest possible level in this country, led by um, the Nobel Prize winner, uh, Herman Muller, and uh, some others, especially Kurt Stern, who was at Rochester, then went to Berkeley, that were, that were tied into this. Muller, in fact, lied during his Nobel Prize speech uh, concerning um, um, the nature of the dose response and the low-dose zone. I've tried to uncover 
how, uh, or tried to figure out how they covered up his lie. Um, and, and, and then Mueller's influence on the Bear One Committee, which was profound. And ultimately, you know, once the rule's written, things don't really change. I mean, we can go into that in a lot more detail. Um, but the point is a historical conflict between medicine, manipulation at the highest levels. And the next thing you know, kind of like a principal in a high school, once you make a rule, you can't change the rule. Uh, and that's where we stand today um, in terms of, uh, uh, I think, why we are, and plus hormesis is, is hard to prove, and why, in fact, the scientific community never validated the threshold model, even tried. Um, I, I mean, it's hard to understand how things work. The hormesis has a lot of applications. It has applications to, to cognitive dysfunction. I believe that every single... Alzheimer's drug that's been approved has a biphasic dose response in the, in the preclinical data. Preconditioning, that phenomenon that, that uh, you may have, uh, when you give a low dose prior to a massive dose, it uh, protects against the massive dose. Uh, this was, in fact, shown first at Duke, where people gave a low hypoxic stress to, to dogs and gave them a major myocardial infarction. The dogs that got the low-level hypoxic stress a day or so before that were 80% protected from the damage to the heart condition. Uh, this has been generalized to all over. But the, the, the key here is that if you take these partitioning doses, these preconditioning doses, and you compare them across the whole dose range, then give them the big hit, it demonstrates an inverted U-shaped dose response. Preconditioning is actually a manifestation of, of hormesis. Uh, immune stimulation, the anti-tumor, uh, angiogenesis, uh, minoxidil that grows hair. You look at, uh, you look at the data that came out of um, <clears throat> Uh, all the work there, it, it shows the inverted U-shape for hair growth, uh, the same, uh, Boniver on uh, osteoporosis, very beautiful inverted U-shape dose responses, wound healing, um, the concept of accelerating wound healing is becoming very well established within the wound healing community. You look at the dose responses, they all show an inverted U, they're all maximum, maximum out at 30 to 60% above. They're all manifestations of hormesis. Um, now, um, yeah, that was about, yeah, my, my father retained most of it, actually. I have to say that. But uh, so I'm going to give you some conclusions here, because I'm, I'm, I'm sure you might have some questions. <laughs> and that is that I believe that hormesis is general, and it's a, um, it's a very central biological concept. Um, it affects all disciplines that utilize the dose-response relationship. Hormesis, I believe, can explain you know, why the eye has a circular shape, why how blood vessels form. It's tied into to, uh, um, controlling growth and doing this through, through uh, agonist con uh, concentrations and uh, all sorts of modulation that way. It's very basic. It represents a general adaptive strategy through which biological performance is mediated and enhanced. This is significant, that little low-dose bump. What is that bump? In my opinion, it's a measure of biological performance. That's the most that you can get out of something. Okay, now that's, that tells us that we can't get much out of biology. Biology is very conservative, but it has, it has plasticity, and that plasticity uh, has constraints. And what I've seen with thousands of examples of hormesis, and that is, wow, I thought initially it would go up to fourfold or something like this, but actually it really doesn't do that. It only goes up to in the percent zones. So when you look at drug companies trying to improve your memory, drug companies trying to grow your hair, drug companies trying to strengthen your bones, drug companies trying to extend your life, all that sort of thing, the most I believe they're ever going to get out of that is 30 to 60%. There was a guy in England who was offering a million dollars challenging the biogerontology community. He, he claimed that there's no reason why humans couldn't live to be 1,500 years old. And he claimed that all these, these brainy people from all over the world couldn't disprove him. I said, well, not very brainy, but I think I can disprove it. I said, I had, I had thousands and thousands of examples of hormesis from all different kinds of endpoints, longevity, but all kinds of endpoints. And I said, 
it only goes up by 30 to 60%. So let's say the, that a human maximum lifespan is 120 or something. Okay, add 30 to 60% on that, you push him 180 to 200 years, a year 150 is dead. It doesn't make any sense biologically at all. I didn't get my million dollars. He was, I think he was just a PR scheme. Uh, but in any case, so on this last slide here, okay, so if I can get to it. Okay, so the, in my opinion, the failure to consider hormetic dose responses within a hazard assessment and risk assessment framework is really a serious failing of modern risk assessment. Uh, risk assessment needs to consider the entire dose response continuum in order to serve the public health. Thank you very much. Well, that was certainly an amazing talk. Um, <clears throat> the moderator does get to ask a question, and you'll understand why I'm asking it in a second. Uh, your graphic on resveratrol, it was, uh, I, I noticed that, that the, um, the longevity effect maximized at five milligrams per kilogram. Um, is that daily? <laughs> you can see where I'm going on this. Uh, people actually have estimated the, um, the optimal amount of wine, so to speak, right. or, 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 or tablets that, that you could have for it. Uh, and, um, and somehow, you know, I, I just can't recall the exact number of milligrams. Um, well, know, it looks like five milligrams per kil kilogram, but I was wondering what length of time. Oh, what length of time? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 daily? Oh, oh, daily. Oh, okay, good. Daily. Yeah, in fact, it was a... I got a calculator. I can yeah. figure this out. Okay, so, questions. What? what? Say again? How much alcohol would you need Probably too much. <laughs> but I mean, I know these people who take a lot of the resveratrol, and they, they might be on the wrong end of that curve is what I'm thinking. So question, who's, who's right back here? If you would state your name and who you're with and use, this, use the microphone if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, Richard Williams with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. I have just a question about trying to understand what you would recommend and, and, and another one. First of all, I mean, typically we go to the Noel and we divide by somewhere between 100 and 10,000 to be protective. If I understood one of your slides, it, you would say to get the hormetic effect, you divide by about five. Is that correctly interpreting that? Uh, yes, that would be that would be the case. It would um, probably depend to some extent on on you know the dose response information that you had. But yes, if you wanted to optimize on on that, uh, the problem the problem with uh, um, with this is that in fact we tend to deal with uh, animal studies, and we're saying that what the optimal for the animal model is, and then you then have. Um, <clears throat> you know, an assumption as to what the relative susceptibility of the animal is to the human. And so I think this needs to be um, thought out more within the context of uh, how it could be translated into, into real policy. But it, it could, if, if in fact you, um, you also sought to, to maximize benefit. So the second question is, when, when we look at high dose, we're, we're picking a particular endpoint because that seems to be the most sensitive endpoint. So the question is, when you get down to low dose and you're in the sort of hormetic range, is it possible there are hormetic effects for other endpoints that wouldn't necessarily be the opposite of what you would find at the, at the high dose? Uh, there, should, there should be hormetic effects for multiple endpoints. And, and we've seen that in, in many different ways. And so you would have to uh, you'd look at a, a much more complicated uh, series of graphs and series of endpoints and, and then have to use your... Um, your judgment as to um, as to what you might want to try to optimize or avoid, and uh, and how you use that more complete knowledge of the dose response to the public's advantage. Wait for the mic, please. I'm Gio Gordy from Bethesda. Um, all right, I, I should not eat it. All right, yeah. All right. Um, I tend to disagree with you, uh, Ed, about the uh, difficulty of showing releases. Uh, just about everything that uh, is around us uh, and is necessary, from vitamins to food to uh, aspirin, analgesics, whatever you want to say, probably what you observe in terms of uh, beneficial effects are rheumatic effects, because you um, overcome uh, a particular dose and you get very negative effects of all these things here. The question really is, why is this idea not being incorporated into our uh, 
official risk assessment procedures. I have some ideas because, as you know, I've fought uh, these battles here myself for the last 50 years. I think that the, the, you pointed out as well, the, the main problem is that whatever systems, whatever systems we have today, they've been ingrained in the system that we have and they're very difficult to, uh, to change. I remember that a few years back, for instance, the uh, Food and Drug Administration was trying to uh, change the diet of the animals that are used to test for carcinogenicity. Because today, and what we are used and what was used traditionally, is a libitum diet, which is the best uh, way to produce cancer in animals, essentially. And they, were, they circulated their proposal to change the diet around, and eventually somebody, including myself, said, well, look, yes, you can change the diet, but then you'll have all sorts of lawyers coming on you and say, now that you have changed the diet, we should test everything else that we've done before. Um, and we should therefore revise and uh, change uh, all the regulations and all the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the limits that you have put to this effect. And I think that's really one of the main problems why we cannot, at this point here, introduce novel ideas into a fossilized and a sclerotic system of risk assessment. Well, the question is really, and it's something for all of us to think about, is if you have uh, a lot of data that supports an alternative view, um, why isn't that alternative view ever considered? I mean, it's, I, mean I, I have lots of data where um, can I also say where, where I don't show hormesis. I have a big file of, of uh, experiments where hormesis didn't show up. I try to figure out why it doesn't, things of that nature. But, but also, I have lots of studies where it does. And so, um, so you're trying to figure out, well, what do we know, what don't we know? Um, I, I think that why it hasn't given, been given its, its due in part is that, is that it's been really excluded from um, it's been really excluded from the educational process, and it's been excluded really from the regulatory process. It really excluded. When you have something that, that, uh, that's not in the textbooks, was never in the textbooks, um, major societies you know, like SOT and others historically never covering it, never encouraging it to be, to be covered. Um, uh, essentially, and, and actually, if you, and if you do do talk about it, you, you, you tend to spend, you tend to get uh, attacked, ridiculed, motives get, get uh, um, uh, you know, challenged. And even, um, even, I got a lot of publicity about 10 years ago uh, on hormesis after an article came out in Nature and I got into the press package, which I never even knew what the press package was, but press package meant everything. I mean, it meant, uh, you know, front page story in the Boston Globe, it meant getting my picture in US News and World Report, you know, a big story in the Wall Street Journal and lots of other things. But, but actually, we thought it was a good thing, it was actually it was a bad thing, because the next thing I knew, I, there was an organized group of about 40 scientist, so to speak, <laughs> who, who organized to follow, to have at least one or two people follow me to every place that I would, uh, for a couple years, to every place I would go so that some people would ask you questions there. Uh, every time I'd write an article, there'd be two or three letters to the editor. Um, there, there's a certain price you pay for challenging, and so a lot of people um, wouldn't put up with it. They would just kind of uh, go away. And, um, and that, that this is only the polite things I can tell you about <clears throat> as compared to other kinds of more career uh, torpedoing strategies that people can try on you. So this, this can be, um, you know, um, mo most people don't do that, but some people do. And, um, and so there are lots of reasons why things, things make it, don't make it. And even when it's kind of you know, grudgingly put into like castrate and dual notes, it needs to be done better, you know, that sort of thing. And, and so um, there's, um, there's the, I'm just happy that in 1980s, there were 10 citations per year on hormesis and in, in, in web of science, web of knowledge. Last year, 2012, there were about 4,500. So it's come a long way. 
And I can tell you, it really should be 20 times more. <laughs> uh, lots of people are reporting biphasic. They never use the term hormesis. There's a battle over terminology. Um, the, um, there's, there's a lot of, um, it's more dynamic today, though, than it was. And I think that's a real positive thing, a very positive development. Uh, the many examples you showed, uh, the hormesis effect always had some kind of optimum, you know, a maximum. Uh, let's, now, let's look at your, your therapeutics slide uh, that you had near the end. Uh, a priori, it would seem uh, that you would not have the same optimum, let's say, for against cognitive dysfunction and to promote hair growth. So my question is, uh, what is the dispersion in optimum, uh, let's say, irradiation or dose for the various therapeutic functions that you showed on your slide? I think that, the, that each person is probably has their own dose-response relationship, and each person would have in theory, their own optimal response. And I think that this has a lot of implications for, uh, for modern medicine, and I believe this is uh, essentially why um, big pharmaceutical companies are, are really getting into personalized medicine, because essentially it's very difficult when you can only show, when you only have about a 30 to 60% increase in biological performance, that you can maximally get, and you are studying this over a highly um, heterogeneous population, and so that where you have different optima uh, for each subgroup within that population, but, but the epidemiologists then sum that data into a whole, and it's not uncommon for them to be summing people who respond well, people don't respond well at the same dose. People might even have a negative response at that, that dose that other people are having a positive response, but when you sum it, you might not even demonstrate efficacy. But there may be, uh, I, I think that probably most groups could show efficacy, but they need to have a targeted dose. And so, and so you might have a very good compound that should not be put on the shelf, but the challenge to pharmaceutical companies is not to have the clinical trial destroy their product, but to try to actually find a way to bring this product to market to help people and to tailor doses. So, but I think that's all tied into optimality uh, and, and heterogeneity with respect to uh, optimality. The other question I have that also relates to optimality is the question of time. There's, it's well known that there's a difference between an acute response and a response that's uh, to a dose that's stretched out over a long time. How do you deal with that? Um, well, these are, these are questions that um, I wished I, I had the answers to. I will give, I'll, I'll try to give you an example of a challenge along those lines that, that I, I actually just learned within the last week or so, and that is that I'm putting together a paper on um, ionizing radiation and longevity in insects. And... Um, and it's actually rather amazing that, that I've seen a biphasic responses when you had a relatively low doses over a long period of time. Um, and also when you had just a single exposure at very high doses, um, a, single, a, a, yeah, a single dose of many doses in the study, but just the low dose showing it, and, and I've seen this with a variety of insect models so that they had, even with an acute model and a chronic model, they got an extension of longevity. And, and I never thought that that could even be possible. Um, and so I think I'm raising this because I think there's a lot more to learn. We're just kind of like most endeavors beginning to scratch the surface. When we begin to look, more things begin to emerge. I think all these things will have potential application. Um, and, um, and so um, we'll have to wait and see. But there's, 
Um, in these cases, the, the, uh, the actual uh, work today is focusing on extremely low doses of radiation, enhancing longevity and things perhaps, I know in fruit flies where they actually have the genome worked out pretty well, so that they're really targeting which genes are responsible for the, for the uh, accentuation of the longevity and other types of factors. We'll, we'll take one more, if there is one more, and then uh, in the back there, no? Um, we'll take the guy from Arcadis. I guess in answer to the question of why, I mean, I think you have to sort of look at the public choice incentives. Um, it, it, right now, if it, and I'm, I'm assuming that your theory is correct, for those compounds that we are marching down on the dose on, a whole lot of programs are finished. Uh, I think PM is a perfect example. Um, and regulatory just a cynic. simply cannot uh, admit that and say, we're done. There's no reason to go any lower. <laughs> yes. Answer to that is yes. <laughs> what do you say? Well, I think that uh, I think a lot of times you just need a, a fresh face at things to to um, who want to uh, pursue the the best public policy with the best science, and and we are you know we might think that we're but we've been at this game a long time, but. Really, we've been just at this game since um, the 1950s to the present time, and we're just kind of getting to this. I, I wonder how things will be, you know, in a hundred years in our knowledge of the dose response, and and uh, how they look at us today in terms. When, for example, I mean, the concept of DNA repair, you know, 1963, um, Setlow comes out with this paper. But this regulation, the, the recommendations are 1957, 58, and they, they just have a hard time dealing with, with new science. The concept of adaptive response in radiation is, uh, you know, comes forth with Shelley Wolf in 1984, the hormesis, but I saw resurgence of interest in the late 80s. Um, these, are, these are concepts, and there'll be other concepts of, of the preconditioning and the hormetic aspect of it. Um, there's, um, it takes some leadership to say, well, what, how, does all, how do these concepts affect our thinking on dose response? How could they revolutionize our regulatory programs? They, they tend to be totally ignored today because people aren't somehow capable of making integrative assessments or, or uh, providing you know, leadership in the in the presence of uh, perhaps political criticism, that sort of thing. But but my sense here is that is that the hormetic model is actually being used today to save lives, um, and and save our lives. And drugs are being developed on these. And it's it's uh, at some point people have to recognize that there is a disconnect. That our an entire pharmaceutical edifice that we base our health and safety on in many ways um, is, is hormetically based, and you have an environmental regulatory policy that, that can't include benefit in the definition of a risk assessment, and that essentially ignores a, a, a huge body of other evidence. Uh, at some point, somebody has to say, um, you know, what's going on here? And it's time to uh, stand back and, and take a new look at this situation. Well, thank you, Ed. I, I will say that I, I am very interested in the public choice incentives and the interaction of them with science. And I can tell you that one of the reasons there's res resistance to you is you're going to put a lot of people out of work, literally. It, it affects people's economic well-being, uh, and you just have to recognize that. Well, I'd like to thank Ed for coming down from Massachusetts to give us this talk, and we'll have a cocktail hour upstairs. Thank you much.